Laurie Evans has been director at the Vice Gallery since 2010. The Vice Gallery, which was established in 1985 at 59 German Street, the heart of the prestigious St. James District of London, is a leading dealer in Tudor, Stuart and Northern European portraiture and has made several notable sales over the last three decades, which now grace distinguished public and private painting collections around the world. Prior to this, Florrie worked at Christie's, specialising in early British pictures and old masters, and has also assisted curators at Tate Britain and Dr Johnson's House Museum. In addition to contributing to various art publications, Florrie has also appeared as an expert on portraiture for the BBC's Stitch in Time series. Her other love is mudlarking on the Thames, which she has done since the age of four. Florrie describes the river as her pleasure and obsession and now has the delight of taking her own daughter with her as she uncovers London's washed-up secrets. Step inside this beautiful gallery with me as Florrie reveals why art, London and the Thames all play a major part in her fascinating life. Each week, I'll be asking my guests to tell us one or two of their favourite secret places to visit in London, whether it's a restaurant, pub, museum or simply a lovely walk. So make sure you listen to the end of the show when my guest will spill the beans on their legacy reveal. I'm Steve Lazarus, and this is Your London Legacy. Well, so I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast today, Florrie Evans. Hello. Who is the director, I believe, of the the Weiss Gallery. Yes. Had a bit of a thing. I always ask at the beginning of any conversation I have if the pronunciation is correct, and particularly with the spelling W-E-I-S-S, there's a multitude of ways... Absolutely. I guess it can be pronounced. So what's the, what's the correct? So really it's like German for white. So it's Weiss. But I always feel a little bit self-conscious saying that. So I tend to stick with Weiss actually. Okay. Let, let's stick with Weiss. I think that's the Perfect. easiest thing today. So Florrie Evans, yes. director of the Weiss Gallery. Yes. And we're sitting here in the gallery in, I think we're in German Street, aren't we? That's so right. A rather exclusive area. Of within is it are we within Mayfair or so is it St we James's? Are, I believe. It's, well, we're Mayfair and St James's, uh-huh. and it's a rather special area for traditional gentlemen's clothing. So you get a lot of tailors around here. Sort of, of course, Savile Row is nearby as sure. well. But we're also in a historic art district, yeah. which I don't think many people, maybe even many Londoners, realise. We are surrounded by the main auction houses. So we've got Christie's on King Street and Sotheby's on Bond Street, and Bonham's also on Bond Street, sure. and then loads of old master galleries all around in this little pocket um, in a grid off German Street. Yes. And I'd like to think that we're a particularly special gallery because we were purpose-built at um, the beginning of the 20th century, around 1900. This was actually built as a gallery. So you'll see, Steve, that we've got very lofty ceilings. And a lot of the other galleries in this area are converted shops, so they don't have the benefit of height. So we can really get some monstrously large full lengths in here, which is important because we deal in portraits, historical portraits. So... For the benefit of the listeners, because obviously they can't see it, although I will be posting some pictures if that's okay oh, with great. you. Oh, great, yes, absolutely. Um, and directing them to, your, to the website later. Just give an overview, a visual overview of what the, what we're looking at as we're sitting here in the front right. part of the shop, uh, shop's gallery. My, well, my no, apologies. it is it's a glorified <laughs> shop, isn't it? A gallery, yeah, really. Very we do sell our it, art. It's stunning. So you just give a brief description, if you will. Well, this gallery is sort of divided into a, a double space. So we have the walls lined with silk damask. And in the front gallery, we've got this amazing dark red damask on which we've hung lots of 
portraits, obviously, mainly 16th and 17th century Northern European portraiture. And then we have what we call the long gallery at the back, which is on a pale green silk. Um, and we tend to put our Tudor portraits down there, our English works. I think they work better on a lighter colour mm. background. But, you know, we do have a very sumptuous gallery space, and I'm happy to say. And that room at the back is beautiful, not only because of the portraits it's got mm. in there, but also it's got the natural light coming through the glass Of course, the, the I should have mentioned, yes, we ceiling. have a glass ceiling, yeah. so you really get a kind of... It's like um, a long, ga- long it's gallery. It's bathed in light. Bathed in light, yeah. which is rather beautiful, yeah. So we're it, and we should also mention where we are as well. I mean, not just beautiful art galleries and auction houses and men's tailor shops as well, but there's plenty of other good things as well. Oh, absolutely. Loads of food things, you know, you've got Fortnum yes. and Mason around the corner, the Burlington Arcade, yes. Ritz Hotel. So it really is the top end, shall we say, of, of, <laughs> it of is, London. It is, so, yes. so it is a privilege to be here. So what I wanted to do today, if that's okay with you, Flory, because you are not only the director of this fantastic art gallery, but you're also a mudlarker. I am indeed. And we did have a mudlarker who introduced me to you. Yes. And one of the, I think he was the first guest on the podcast, Jason Sandy. Lovely Jason. Lovely Jason. Yeah. Uh, and, he, and his episode actually proved to be one of the most popular episodes we've had on the show. Oh, so good. It, it Tough made... act to follow then. <laughs> so no pressure there then. <laughs> <laughs> so I just wanted to understand, first of all, how you, how you developed an interest in art and history yeah. and history of art, combining the two how you combine your love for portraiture of this is the Tudor mm. and the Stuart period, as yes, I understand exactly. it, predominantly yes, Europe- yes. European yeah. art, with, with mudlarking and taking your daughter down to the foreshore to do mudlarking. So what was your upbringing like? And so, I mean, what was your exposure to, to art and history? Well, I think I come from a relatively arty family. Um, my dad is a publisher and came from a family of publishers. And my mum is a musician. She's a composer and a pianist. So I grew up in quite a sort of a family that engaged with art. I, I always remember going to galleries with my mum, particularly. And one of my first memories, actually, is of looking at a Sasso Ferrato in the National Gallery. This sounds incredibly pretentious. Sorry about that, Steve. I don't, I've no idea. I've no idea. But I just remember being stunned by the blue on um, this this Madonna and child. She uh-huh. was obviously the Virgin Mary, so she was in blue and I, I don't know whether any of the listeners are familiar with um Sasso Ferrato who was one of the great um, Italian late renaissance painters anyway he's all about color as is the case with a lot of Italian art and I just uh-huh. that really struck me that the that I was drawn to the color blue and again I mean maybe in some way um this connects with my sort of riverine passion as well I love water I love being by water and I grew up in a very privileged position being mm. very near the river and I used to go for weekend walks and um sort of whenever I could get down onto the foreshore where where, where, um, where was that this okay. was in Putney, Putney. and Barnes okay. um and actually it's it's not the best area for mudlarking funnily enough it's very very muddy but you know as a small child that didn't really bother me sure. and I was obsessed with picking up bits of pottery and and collecting them a bit like a child would pick up shells by the beach do, do love doing that don't they? yeah things yeah out. and um and I can I can credit my dad with a lot of this passion because 
he is is quite creative himself and and also likes getting muddy and one of our sort of childhood things that well one of my memories of things that I did with him was to go um, mudlarking but also to go searching skips for bits of wood and (laughs) so that he could (laughs) do carpentry (laughs) Um, you know so um, we I definitely grew up with an appreciation for sort of scavenging and salvaging and and from that came a love of history as well so I started sort of questioning what it was that I was finding sort of what these bits of broken glass might have been, what sort of bottle, what period they were. And really just, it became an obsession. So were you one of these kids who started to sort of collect them and catalogue oh God, them? Yes. And- yeah, absolutely. I even yeah. had sort of a, a, what I called my finds book where I'd write down sort of what I'd found exactly on that particular day. Yeah. Um, and I would sort of often kind of come up with completely wild identifications. I mean, for a long time, I thought that the sort of little white clay pipe stems that are so prevalent by the foreshore were were dinosaur bones. I mean, ridiculous. But once I did realize that they were pipes, I became obsessed with finding the pipe bowls. Mm. And then I wanted to find decorated pipe bowls. And, you know, it just kind of spun on from there, Uh really. So when did you decide you were going to take it seriously and study art and history? Was that when you were, I don't know, a sixth form of college or wherever it was? Well, funnily enough, I actually always wanted to study English literature. I loved art. I loved history. One of my favorite programs was Time Team, archaeology, obviously. Mm-hmm. But it never occurred to me that that was something I would study. It was just a sort of a hobby for me. So I, I don't know why I decided I wanted to study English literature, but I, I, I knew from a young age that's what I wanted to do. So I always loved reading. But what I realized once I was at university is that obviously literature ties in so beautifully with art and often literary movements reflect artistic movements as well. So one of my favorite periods um, in literature is the late 18th century, where obviously, again, I'm going to sound really cliched, but I love Jane Austen. Mm -hmm. And she starts sort of examining the idea of the picturesque, which you also get in art, a kind of understanding, a sudden blossoming of um, landscape and looking at landscape and the way in which we paint landscape and describe landscape. And so that was when it occurred to me that maybe a rather nice MA to do would be art history. Also, I had no idea what I wanted to do as a career. So I just wanted to prolong playing, I suppose, and enjoying. Playing, but nonetheless following what you love, following your passion, I suppose. Exactly. So I did an MA at the Courtauld Institute of Art very randomly it was in the french 19th century that was really just an excuse i think to go and hang out in paris (laughs) (laughs) it was to to hang out in paris steve (laughs) really but i i credit my sort of grounding in old masters actually um entirely to my time at christie's because i did their graduate trainee scheme and i was put into the early british pictures department and the old master department and um i was suddenly faced with uh, cataloging these extraordinary paintings you know it, it is incredible the influx of paintings to an auction house you'll get you'll you know physically handle maybe a hundred pictures a week especially when you're at the kind of junior specialist level mm. you're the one having to kind of measure them up yeah. and describe them that must have been such a privilege for it you was it was a must huge privilege from going to yeah. studying it to actually mm. you know, sensing touching 
these objects in your in your hands for absolutely, real absolutely absolutely and then suddenly especially um there was real resonance for me seeing portraits um early portraits and realizing that i had found things that might be in um a costume in a portrait so whether it's a a kind of amazing ornate button on a on a a woman's dress or mm. um, a buckle on a shoe. And um, that was when I really realized that um, there was a connection between my sort of childhood passion and uh, for mudlarking and what I was now seeing and handling every day mm. um, at work. So it just kind of came together really beautifully, actually. How wonderful. Um, for me. And you were at Christie's for a number of years, I believe. I you? was indeed. Um, and actually, I've now been here. Uh, for nine years as well so <laughs> i can't quite believe it revealing my age where does age. time go exactly right. <laughs> exactly <laughs> we won't tell anyone yeah. <laughs> so you were at christie's and then you, then you went straight from christie's to here so christie's yeah. obviously so we're now going into the, the real commercial world if you like absolutely of, of buying and selling and this is a, gal- a wonderful exactly. gallery as well so the main thrust of this gallery at the weiss gallery here is what exactly so it is historical portraits and as we discussed tudor and stewart which are so close to my heart sort of in, i think that the drama of um early british history is uh, and the romance is partly to do with the fact that there's enough out there there's enough physical evidence mm. and documentation that we know a lot about it but it's far enough removed that our imaginations can kind of kick into overdrive sure. and i think there is a lot of romance to these pictures and also when you look at a portrait you have so many different ways of perceiving it you can look at it as the artist's perception of the sitter you can also look at it as the sitter's desire to present themselves in a particular yes. way and so there's all this kind of interplay which i think makes a portrait so much more interesting than any other type of mm. painting i mean as i'm sitting here listening to you talking about that mm. i'm looking i mean no idea who, who these characters are they look mm. obviously very regal in many many senses but they're all i think today we'd probably say they're a bit stilted in you know from a contemporary yes, point of view because yes. they're very rigid in their frame in their posture in the way they're looking at the well i think that's right particularly with elizabethan art what you have is a desire to show off your wealth through your clothes Uh so i think people the very wealthy people who could afford to have their portrait painted were not really interested in a realistic presentation of their personality or their face it was about showing their finery a bit like instagram (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) exactly putting up a false impression of what exactly and i think also so if you think of uh, uh, portraits of Elizabeth herself, she's always incredibly flat and iconographic. Uh-huh. And it's to do with the, the symbolism in the portrait and the symbolism within her costumes. I mean, there's an amazing portrait of her where she's got eyes and ears in her, sort of incorporated into the embroidery in her dress to show that she was all seeing and all hearing and all powerful. Mm. And her face is always masculine. So who determined those symbols to go in? What Would it be the... the, the the subject of the art? I think it was very much... Say, I'm going to stick in your ears yeah. and, your, and to make you <laughs> I powerful. think it was collaborative, yeah. definitely. But I mean, Elizabeth took a, a really sort of... Well, she was either very vain, very clever, a combination, um, but she actually would order people from her court to go and destroy any iconography and any portraits of her that didn't fit into her particular idea of how she should be perceived. So there were certain kind of paradigms within which um, an artist was allowed to Mm. present her. And if she 
heard of a painting which didn't present her in a particular way, it would have to be burnt. So I think the contemporary mm. equivalent would be, um, what do you call it, reputational manager. Absolutely, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Which, is, which is very interesting. It's that iconography, is that symbolism that drew you to this particular Absolutely, yes. Era. But I mean, I also, I'm obsessed with costume. I love clothes. Um, and you, you just don't get more fabulous costume than from this period, quite right. frankly. The men were able to dress up like peacocks. I mean, look at the shoes on this portrait behind me, Steve. Um, so this a, is, just, just explain the portrait we're looking so at. So right behind first, me, yeah. I have got a very large full-length portrait of Sir James Hay, who was a diplomat in the court of James I of England. And he was potentially James's lover, actually. Right. And um, he's he's wearing incredibly tight tights and a very high doublet and hose and i mean he's got his dancing legs out that's the mm. way to describe it camp i think would yeah be, very yeah. camp and um he's got these amazing shoes with just ginormous rosettes made out of saffron dyed lace with gold spangles which are sequins that? is that that's documented so, absolutely so it was a thing in around uh, circa 1610 uh -huh. to 16 18, quite a short window when it was fashionable to dye your lace, usually yellow. It was partly practical because obviously it meant you didn't have to wash it so much and mm -hmm. people were pretty filthy back then. But um, it, it also was considered very attractive to have so yellow lace. If you saw lace. a gentleman out and about with saffron dyed, what do you call Rosettes. Rosettes on the front of your shoes, you'd recognize that person as... You know, incredibly, wealthy. incredibly wealthy. I mean, these are court shoes. Yeah. I mean, he wouldn't actually wear them out and about in the street. But uh, I mean, look at the look at those. They're amazing. They've got these golden <laughs> sequins on them as well. Yeah, I think um, you'd have to be in a cabaret act if you were wearing yeah. those. To, to <laughs> exactly. I would love to have a pair of shoes like that. Yeah, they're, well, they're magnificent. And because of your knowledge and love of um, art and fashion, you've also appeared, I think, in a is it, well, it was a BBC Four. Yeah, so uh, yes, program. exactly. A stitch in time with Amber Butchart, um, looking at um, historical costume. It was uh -huh. a really fun series where Amber um, investigated various periods and would choose a subject, whether it was through a painting or a historical person like Marie Antoinette, and then would uh, choose a costume to recreate with these wonderful women known as the Tudor Tailors. Anyway, the episode I was um, in, we were looking at an 18th century peasant portrait. Which and is very unusual. I yes, believe. incredibly unusual. And again, a full length, even more unusual, of a woodcutter, a hedge cutter. And um, it's a, 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 actually a very poignant image because he's even got a tear trickling down his face. And um, it's, it's a kind of commentary on how difficult life was for um, people in the countryside at that time, um, particularly with the the beginnings of um, industrialization and um, it just it was a huge change, I think, socially. So, who would have commissioned a, a portrait like that? Good question. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's from the. I don't think that's a commission. I think that was the artist probably trying to make a social commentary. Right on what was happening at the time. Um, another sort of massive thing at that time was um, enclosure. So a lot of um, fields were were being kind of siphoned off with specific hawthorn hedges. And of course, this was a portrait of a, of a hedge cutter. And that had um, implications for... Um, peasants and 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 the way the land was worked and there was a lot of outcry at the mm. time over that as well so as much as anything it's a political sort of 
demonstration. Absolutely. Like, of, so I think uh, that was probably an artist who was quite right on and, and was really trying to make a, a statement. Do, do we know who the artist was? I think we thought it might have been Thomas Barker of Bath uh-huh. because he is known to have done a series of full lengths of portraits of men of everyday life um, that were exhibited um, in Bath in the late 18th century. And it would make sense that this was one of those Mm. portraits or part of that series. Um, But we never really got to the bottom of whether it definitely was because the early provenance of the painting was not known, Mm. sadly. Um, But actually, Steve, that picture really tied in for me with my mudlarking because we were trying to date it. Was it late 18th? Was it early 19th? century it was very difficult to tell because obviously um, a peasant would be wearing clothes that had been repaired and were perhaps hand-me-downs so it was very much he was wearing a long jacket which probably was 50 years or so old but he was holding a, a, a clay pipe and he was smoking and I find as we discussed earlier a lot of clay pipes by the river and you can date a pipe according to the size of its bowl. The smaller the pipe bowl, the older the pipe. Right. Because tobacco, of course, was very expensive sure. when it first came over with Sir Francis Drake, actually, who made it popular in, in Elizabethan England. Um, and it wasn't until really the late 18th century and the early 19th century that tobacco was more prevalent and that you would get peasants smoking, not just the elite, and you would have a larger pipe bowl. So that was quite helpful for dating that painting. Yeah. I remember when I saw Jason um, and his collection, he's got loads of these clay pipes as yes. well. And it's fascinating. I mean, obviously, a lot of guys that are working on the on the river over the centuries were heavily into tobacco and, and smoking. Absolutely. And Even children, women and children would smoke. And of course, you have to remember that Londoners mainly got around London by water. They would get ferry rides across from one side to the other. There weren't as many bridges as we have today. And so the wherrymen, the, the, the watermen who would sort of ferry people across were incredibly important. Sure. Uh, and there were lots and lots of them. So you would have people, groups of people queuing up to get a ferry across. And of course, you know, they'd chuck their tobacco pipe onto the foreshore as they got into the into the boat i'd yeah. like to think so often at sort of ferry crossing points along the river there are more there's a prevalence of pipes mm. so there are patches where you think oh yeah there must have been a crossing here this must be where people were waiting to get on a boat yeah sort of the fag butts of yesteryear yeah. really <laughs> so for those who haven't heard the jason sandy one or know nothing about mudlarking mm. Just tell us about the origins of mudlarking because today it's it's a pastime, you know. Yes. Some people say it's a pastime, you know, the privileged few and, you know, in a good, wonderful position who can find these artifacts. But it originated with, I think, kids, you know, poor scavenging on the Thames. Absolutely. And um, I think that um, sort of probably historically um, poor children and uh, and people would scavenge along the foreshore through the centuries, but it was particularly a problem in or, or, or was drawn to people's attention by Henry Mayhew, who was one of the founders of Punch in the 19th century, who went round interviewing um, Londoners about their lives. And he interviewed a young mudlark, and it's a very poignant description of this ragged child who would basically earn a living by finding scraps of metal and or even lumps of coal. And he didn't even have shoes, and he'd be sort of 
uh, trying different, but it would have been actually a horrendous way to live. And if you can imagine these little children who were the, considered the lowest of the low, often they were orphans and uh, they would be scavenging along the river at low tide, often working two low tides. So they were at the mercy of the river, so yeah. to speak. Um, but it also was their only way of making any kind of living. And yeah. it's extraordinary, yeah. really. And I remember, I think we said before, before we came on, on mic, as it were, I studied um, Dickens, our mutual friend. I can't remember if it was O-level or A-level. At school, I, I can't recall. <laughs> Too long ago. <laughs> and the theme of that was obviously the river going through it. And yes. it starts off with the scene of watermen, I think, going up and down, pulling out a body from the Thames. Absolutely. And, and taking what they could from the body. Absolutely. Because there were lots of bodies in the Thames. I, I have to say, I don't wish to uh, sort of dwell on the morbid, but um, definitely when I pick up finds which may have come off um, clothes um, and clothing, I often think, God, did this come off a, a body that floated down the river and decomposed? Mm, you know, there's, it, it, yeah, it is a thought. And I'm afraid it is a thought that it does occur to me on and off as I mudlark. Yeah. Well, you gave a beautiful description in one of the, I think, an article you wrote for Apollo. Oh, gosh, you've really done your research. Well, <laughs> I'm not going to come all the way over here to meet you oh. and not, not do any reading. <laughs> Thank you. That's okay. That's fine. I mean, this is an article you wrote, I think, uh, which says September 2017. And you give this description of this um, watch winder. Yes. Or part of a watch winder That's that you right. found when you were mudlarking. Yes. Yeah. And what I love about it is that not only do you, is, is the process of you going down to the foreshore. I don't know if you're with your daughter on this one, your young daughter. Uh, yes, I occasion. was actually. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. that in itself is lovely. Mm. Uh, what a wonderful experience. But then finding something, you know, I, I don't know what period this is from, uh, about it, 1720, it, I think. You exactly. Said. Early yeah. 18th century. And, it, and it's the watch winder i mean who even knew that it had watch so you had to wind your watches in those days yeah, with a winder exactly Not, you didn't have an led or a, <laughs> a swiss rotary so no. i mean to find that is incredible and you, and you give not only a little bit of history about the watch winder but also your version of what how it could possibly conceivably have come to land at the bottom of the Thames through the generations yes i could imagine it falling out of the pocket of a dandy as he gets a ferry across um and yes i mean that's what I love about finding these objects is that they're so evocative of who might have last touched them or owned them. And it does make you think mm. about the sort of imaginative possibilities and the stories behind sure. these items. Yeah. I mean, you gave a rather romantic version of it, but as you said earlier. I tend to romanticize. <laughs> it, it, it could have been something far worse than that, couldn't it? Yes. Yeah. So mudlarking, I mean, you know, you're working in a beautiful, stunning gallery here. Mudlarking is the complete opposite if you like because there you're getting down and dirty aren't you yes. going down with, on your hands and knees with your wellies on exactly i mean what what is the th what do you find is the th of the thrill of that how does that balance with this is that getting back is that the nature element and the personal history side of it oh definitely i mean for me it's also escape from the hustle and bustle of of the city and of mm. life itself so when i go down onto the foreshore I, I sort of look at it as being emotional headspace in a way. I mean, just connecting with the city in such a unique way and hearing the sound of the water. And I just find it incredibly meditative, really, mm. as, as a way to pass the time where I kind of switch off and I'm just concentrating on trying to find something, but also literally feeling the mud in my hands mm. or the crunch of the pebbles under my feet. It's all incredibly 
tactile and and yeah I just switch off I mentally switch off but I think I reconnected with mudlarking thanks to my daughter actually who you who you mentioned a minute ago mm. when I was on maternity leave I found the only way I could get her to calm down and sleep was if I went on long walks so I would find myself gravitating towards the river with her in a sling That's lovely. and and sort of trying to get some kind of solace myself by the river and in a sense, wanting to reconnect with my own childhood and with the, the time that I spent with my family down by the river. And uh, as she got older, she would be able to toddle along next to me and, and I would sort of explain to her what we were picking up. And I remember thinking, wow, there aren't many two-year-olds who'd be able to pick up a little marble tessera and go, mummy, mummy, it's a tessera. And I, you know, again, that sounds ridiculous, but um, it gave me so much pleasure to think that I That's was lovely. teaching her history through the river, the way I'd learned through exactly, the river. Exactly, you're passing down your mm. knowledge and your skills from, from generation to generation. Yeah. So they can understand the generations that have gone before i think that in itself i mean your london legacy is all about people's stories but it's also understanding legacies that other people are creating Absolutely. so you've got the legacy of the river and what yeah. that's unfolding all the time and you discovering these things for you and your daughter that's wonderful and she's the best companion by the river now and i arguably actually is uh, better at finding thing, yeah. things than me and she says I'm the sharp eyes in the family yeah. <laughs> I mean it's true but I mean f how long she'll she'll enjoy it I don't know but for now she's incredibly enthusiastic. So what sort of things have you found I mean we've, we've mentioned obviously the clay pipes and mm. the, the watch winder what other sort of what are commonly I know there's lots of garnets in the river for some reason. Yes yes um, well I mean it's a bit of a mystery the garnets I think uh, a spill probably from a cargo is that's my mm. my theory, um, but I mean there are other theories. Uh, some people have suggested that they were used for sanding and they were kind of just thrown away after. But I mean I think that they're the, the quality of these garnets that they're so beautiful and they're they're all naturally faceted is such that I think they were they were meant for sort of jewellery making. It is odd that there's so mm. many of them. I mean, yeah, thousands of these things that and, found. I mean, I found them now in four different locations. Okay, so they really. And you guys don't tell your locations, do we you? Don't. You're very secret. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> you mudlarkers. <laughs> no, it's it's very very much a kind of mudlarkers code. Yes. Absolutely. So what else have you found? Well, I mean, I, I went through a phase of being obsessed with Roman things. And so I was very chuffed when I, I found a Roman area and discovered that, you know, firstly, Roman pottery and then Roman coins. And that was quite exciting for me. But really, my favorite finds and the things that I seem to gravitate towards naturally are buttons and beads. And I don't know whether that's because I love costume, sure. but they seem to find me or I seem to find them. And I've got a great collection of um, buttons from medieval through to 19th century, like with a, actually a predominance of 18th century buttons. Mm. Um, some of them are so wonderfully detailed, Steve. I mean, you have these kind of amazing uh, sort of curlicues and patterns and pictures on some of the buttons, whether they're engraved or molded, gilded, enameled. They they just, I think, are so evocative. Mm. That's um, perfect for what you do mm. here as well, though, isn't it? With Absolutely. With your understanding and love of, um, Absolutely. of uh, couture mm. yeah, and clothing. It's, it's, and fashion, it's wonderful. I was going to ask you also about 
the an exhibition I think you assisted with curating was it last year for yes yes so for uh, as part exhibition? of yes yeah, so totally as Thames. part of Totally Thames I curated an exhibition of mudlarking finds alongside photography still life photography by Hannah Smiles who's a very talented photographer mm. um, and uh, she contacted me actually and asked if I would uh, like to do it with her um, and I, I'm happy to say it was such a success that Totally Thames invited me to curate a much larger exhibition which will be at the end of September hopefully touching wood oh, assuming we get, get our heritage lottery funding through right. <laughs> so we're actually going to be doing one which is going to be in a massive warehouse across um, four floors so wow. gonna have to get a lot of things where's in that, there that <laughs> so um, going it's going to be the barge house behind the oxo tower on the south okay. bank so nice oh, and wonderful. central so is this all you mudlarkers coming together and absolutely and you're curating everyone's collections exactly you? and hannah's going to take some photographic portraits of um, 20 different mudlarkers a sort of cross-section of the types of people who mudlark the river and then what we're going to encourage those uh, mudlarks who, who've been portrayed in a portrait by Hannah to do is to choose their favorite finds and to curate their own vitrines with their favorite mm -hmm. finds. And I'll help them to maybe write some text about um, why the river is important to them and to oh, display that with the finds. We, we have a date for that yet? Well, I think it's going to be the last week of September. Well, I but hope I'm here. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> <laughs> we maybe can give out some details of that uh, in, in a moment. Well, that's absolutely wonderful. Well, it's been a, a, a thrill to, to be here. I know it's, uh, we're just about coming up to opening time of the gallery, so now's probably a good time to sort of to wrap it up. So thank you very much. And thank you, Steve. It's been a pleasure. Now it's been an absolute thrill to be here. Well, we're at the time of the conversation when I ask the guest, my guest, uh, in this case, Flory Evans, to name, you know, one, one or two of her favorite places that not necessarily everybody knows about, but she loves and finds, you know, comfort from. Well, I think I'm going to go straight in with the Welcome Trust, the Welcome Centre, which is an amazing place to visit. It has got a library, which does not sound very exciting, but... It does to me already. I love books. <laughs> where you can sit on a beanbag and just pick books off the shelves, and it's a really beautiful environment to just lounge around in. I love it. That sounds and also, amazing. Where is it? This is really awful, because I, I, I cycle everywhere. I, I'm just trying to think exactly... It's probably nearest Warren Street Tube, uh -huh. um, but it's an amazing building and it often has incredible exhibitions as well. It's it's a kind of uh, museum of medicine, I suppose. Okay. Yeah, um, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. I guess if people can look that up, Google it. Is yeah, the, uh, but but it's it's got a great permanent display as well. It has what my daughter calls the the giant uh, jelly baby uh, sculpture, but it's just a fantastic Wonderful. jewel in London that to visit. Good. Go on a rainy day and just lounge in the library. Oh, that sounds perfect. Uh, so that's probably my top spot. Uh -huh. um, obviously, I have to bring you to the river. Of course. Um, and I love any low tide walk, um, but I would take you to Wapping, which is sort of my local hood. And um, our favourite cafe there is called Cinnamon. And we like to go for a long walk along the river and then reward ourselves with hot chocolate at Cinnamon Cafe, which is on Wapping Lane. Sounds perfect way yes. to end the day. <laughs> I look forward to that. I want to ask you how people can find you. Right. Uh, you yes. personally, because I know you've got a wonderful Instagram Thank account you. with 
thousands of followers where you exhibit all your wonderful finds from mudlarking. So how can people find you first So there? they can catch up with all my finds at my Instagram handle, which is at flow underscore finds. So flow finds, my finds, the things I've yep. <laughs> <laughs> But also I'd encourage you to come to the wonderful gallery, the Vice Gallery, which is 59 German Street. And you can look at all our beautiful paintings online, even if you can't visit the gallery. Um, and it's www.vicegallery.com. And Vice. that's W-E-I-S-S. Okay. Now, a lot of people, myself included probably previously, would walk past one of these galleries and think, that's not for me. That's a bit sort of, you know, highbrow and I can't, I can't be seen one of those. I wouldn't know what to do. <laughs> and they'd be missing out. <laughs> no, I mean, the great, you know, you don't have to, uh, you don't have to be sort of coming in to buy a painting to come and enjoy art. You're not going to be sold portraits. to. <laughs> no, no, you can come in and just have a look around. You yeah. know, I love, and my colleagues um, love nothing more than to talk about the pictures here and, you know, to share enthusiasms. Yeah. Because I'm guessing these these portraits, I don't know the value, but they're they're in the tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands. Some of them. Some of them are in the millions. Some of Steve. them are in the millions. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So they're not to everyone's budget. <laughs> no, indeed, but they're for everyone to enjoy. Absolutely. There's been some major sales from this from this showroom, haven't there, over the years? Oh yes. Both to yes. public galleries and to private. Absolutely. Collectors. And in fact, we're really thrilled because um, every year we exhibit at a massive art fair in Maastricht called TAFAF. And we just got back from exhibiting there and we sold to three Dutch museums um, over the course of two weeks and a fourth mu museum in the pipeline for another portrait. So um, assuming that goes through, we will have sold to four institutions in two weeks, which is, I think, a record. Fantastic. Selling projects into Europe. Well, that's an interesting concept, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> and on the verge of Brexit, well, he's <laughs> hoping that doesn't happen. Yeah, they can't put borders up for art, surely but we'll see yeah. so we've got your Instagram we've got to the website and there's, there's presumably emails and contact pages on the website absolutely, as well absolutely yes that's absolutely fantastic well once again thank you very much indeed it's been thank a pleasure you. and um, keep on doing what you're doing enjoy your mudlarking um, I will do do you know it's low tide right now Steve is it shall we go <laughs> yeah I think we should <laughs> <laughs> nice to see you good to Take see care. you every week here at Your London Legacy we bring straight to your device a new and fascinating guest with a wonderful London-based story. We hope you enjoy listening to their timeless stories as much as we enjoy creating them for you. If so, the best way to show your appreciation is to subscribe to the show. Simply go to www.yourlondonlegacy.com and pop your name and email in the box where shown. That way, you'll never miss another episode. Thank you for your support. <laughs>